electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner on day 158 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, the great divide. How the stock market can be so good while the economy is still so bad. The Nasdaq 100 hitting an all-time high. The stock market's recovery, more robust than many thought possible. Initial jobless claims, 1.877 million. The story off of Wall Street is very different. Tonight, getting to the bottom of the disparity. Plus, I bought a ticket on Southwest, flying anonymously. One CEO's remarkable story of what happened when he flew coach in the back of the plane. And the return of two major parts of the USA, basketball and Vegas. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It's good to have you with us on this Thursday night on a day when the S&P 500 and NASDAQ snap four-day win streaks. Let's take our first look this evening at futures, how the day on Friday may go. And we are slightly higher, though, obviously, it is still very early. As for today, some disappointing jobs data kept a lid on things on Wall Street. Still, the Dow managing to scratch out a small gain towards the end of the day. As I said, the S&P and NASDAQ ended lower. But earlier in the session, the NASDAQ 100, which are the biggest 100 stocks in that index, hit an all-time high before big tech sold off. Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon all weighing on the NASDAQ today. Markets hitting these new highs in the midst of a pandemic and protests around this country. On the eve of what is expected to be another terrible jobs report, why isn't Wall Street reflecting the pain on Main Street? Bill Rogers is a professor of public policy at Rutgers University. Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and co-managing partner at Skybridge Capital, both with us. Gentlemen, it's good to have you tonight. Good to see you, Scott. Good to be here. And, Anthony, Thanks, I, I begin with you. When people ask you, how is it possible that the stock market is where it is, what do you tell them? I tell them that there's a water wall of liquidity. It's not a bazooka, Scott. It's like literally a green tsunami washing over the United States. $2.1 trillion injected since the crisis. Another $1.9 trillion by the Fed to be injected over the next 14 uh, months. You and I are, are good friends of Lee Cooperman. He was my old boss at Goldman. Uh, we were talking about this three or four weeks ago. Some of the elder statesmen are nervous about the markets, don't like the markets in terms of fundamentals, but it's irrefutable that the liquidity is driving the market and the adage that don't fight the Fed is living with us right now. Bill, it's th- this great disconnect, the great divide, whatever you want to call it. You have Wall Street hitting these Incredible milestones, the best 50-day run for the S&P 500 in its history at a time where we're talking about 30 million Americans out of work, 
The confirmation yet again of where we are will come tomorrow with the jobs report. Yeah, well, you have two situations where the, the stock market or the NASDAQ and the S&P, they, they represent their leading indicators, while the indicators we're going to see tomorrow with the jobs report are lagging indicators. Uh, so they take the stock market, those, those indices, they capture current and future prices and, and, and expected, expected uh, and, and they're built on expectations, which I think was embedded in Anthony's, question, in Anthony's comment that particularly one, like the Federal Reserve, has said that they will backstop and, and help out and assist uh, and, and provide liquidity for, the, for these companies, large companies. But on Main Street, when we've tried to provide uh, assistance, whether it be unemployment insurance or the Triple uh, P, the Paycheck Protection uh, Program, right, it, was, it was just un poorly done. And so, there, and, so, and so that's why we're seeing some lagging uh, re responses uh, within, with on Main Street. But uh, you know, the, 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 the stock market or these indices will update if you see the, uh, the Fed changing stances or if we see that going forward, we're not going to get a fourth uh, a sort of a recovery type of package, particularly for state and local governments. Uh, those kinds of uh, negative news will, will, I think, have an impact on the, on the indices, on this run that they're having. Unless, Anthony, you can start to make a case that the economy's bottomed. I mean, some of the jobs data, as bad and as depressing as it is, could suggest that the worst of this crisis may be behind us. Well, certainly there's a lot of analysts that think that we think that it's Skybridge, our economic team thinks that. I'd be curious to see what Professor Rogers says. But think about the PPP. As flawed as it was, uh, the Treasury Department is saying that 41 million jobs are tied to the PPP. Skybridge economic team is saying about 17 million people, Scott, that are unemployed as part of that 41 million. So when the economy goes back on, those people, those covenants require them to hire those people back. You'll see a very positive delta. That will be good for credit markets. I think the stock market is already pricing that. But you and I both know that the credit markets are not pricing that. Last point, without the FANG stocks and Microsoft, S&P 500 is still down about 9%. We've seen a 17% year-to-date FANG plus M. Uh, and so that tells you how narrow this uh, bull market is, Scott. Although, you know, Bill, you can make the case, Professor, you look at now it's broadened out. You have this so-called recovery trade. You have stocks that were seemingly left for dead, which have had tremendous gains of late on the fact that the economy is reopening. Mark Zandi yesterday, after a pretty decent ADP report, which was a beat, yes, it was depressing still, but nonetheless better than expectations. He all but declared the COVID-19 recession over. Well, I, I would be a little hesitant to de declare it over because there are two potential headwinds out there uh, that, that could lead to a resurgence uh, in, in, in the virus, which I hope doesn't happen. Uh, number one is the protesters that we've been seeing over the last six, six to seven nights. Uh, you don't see a lot of people pr practicing social distancing. And, and in a piece I talked about today in Barron's, I urge people to be and I support people protesting uh, peacefully. But uh, but but there is a great deal of, uh, of movement out there. And so we need to see and use our con be ready to do our contract tracing in the next two weeks uh, just in case we do get an outbreak. Uh, also, and some work that I just have done, too, I found that the states that opened up earlier with regards to uh, beginning to move to stage one, stage two, stage three with the reopenings, 
they actually have been trending poorly in some of these peak indicators, such as hitting their hitting their their testing targets, or also trending poorly in terms of the uh, the, the amount of uh, a virus that uh, people are getting infected. So. Those are two potential headwinds to where you know, I do sort of want to hope that this is tomorrow's report for May is the worst. But if we don't uh, continue to get the PPE to employers, employers so they can create safe and fair workplaces and consumers can be confident about uh, going and shopping and that we and, and that they don't and that they also and if they don't if they don't get their uh, testing uh, infrastructure put together, um, this may not may tomorrow's results may not be the worst. But uh, but again, I'm hoping uh, that people and companies and the and the federal government and state and local governments are we're all doing the right thing and, and 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 rowing all in the same direction to help us move forward. Anthony, you and the professor make good points. It's well understood why we are where we are because of this money that's been injected into the economy by the Federal Reserve and the federal government. The question, though, does become: Are we too complacent? Are we counting on things going better than they may? You know, I, I don't think so, because if you look at the magnitude of the stimulus and you calculate the economic loss, uh, it's sort of a, it's an overwhelming thing. I think what I'm worried about and I would imagine Professor Rogers is worried about is the evenness of the deployment. I think we can say after the global financial crisis in 2008, uh, the monetary policy helped the people that had the assets, uh, the, the lower and middle class people struggled. I think what I'm worried about is the unevenness of the deployment. The economy will come back. The numbers will be there, Scott. But will rising disposable income happen for the middle class and for the lower middle class? All three of us know that that is sorely needed to sort of uh, reduce the national angst that's out there right now. Professor, your, your thoughts on that. It is, a, it is a great concern that you only exacerbate problems that have already existed between uh, or around income inequality. You have those investors or the investor class making all of this money back while there are still, as I said at the outset, some 30 million of our mm -hmm. fellow citizens who are out of work. Yeah, no, you, you, Anthony, and you, you make a great point. And uh, you know, I've been doing some work with uh, a local United Way here in New Jersey called United Way of Northern New Jersey. And we created this concept called ALICE, where ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. And it's basically households that are many are above poverty, and but they don't have enough resources to make ends meet in their community. And we have about 35 to 38 percent of our households in New Jersey, and this is we think it's similar across the nation, uh, and and that 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 have this challenge. Uh, and so one of the things I've also really have enjoyed with working on the Governor's Restart Commission is his commitment to uh, to having an inclusive recovery, such that we don't replay the types of, of recoveries in the past where we continue to have a growing income and a schism. And it's becoming really, we've hit that tipping point to where we're starting to see many of our institutions and our infrastructure and just our ways of life about how we communicate with other, uh, each other and uh, work with each other and in, in our communities, that that's becoming a part, coming apart because of right, this growing schism between the haves and the haves nots. Uh, and in particular, right, we've seen this sort of middle class shifting down and having more experiences like like many of the of Af many African-Americans have, which they're protesting uh, with regards to uh, Mr. Floyd. Gentlemen, and I, I yeah, and I think that's why I see we see so much more diversity in the ranks of the of the peaceful protesters. It's because, uh, yes, there are racial and ethnic uh, and gender issues uh, that need to be sorely addressed. But these challenges that 
these groups have been facing over across generations now really are affecting a broader swath of the American public. I appreciate the conversation. Professor, thank you. That's Bill Rogers joining us. Anthony Scaramucci, our thanks to you to as well. You. We'll talk to both of you yeah, soon. Thanks. Now to the health part of this crisis tonight. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you again. Let's begin with pickup of the conversation we're just having. The stock market is where it is because it assumes that the economy is going to have a fairly quick recovery. How are you feeling about where we are in terms of the virus and how cities are getting back to business? Yeah, picking up on that conversation, it's hard to see the real economy just snapping back. We've talked on this show about an 80 percent economy where the marginal consumer doesn't come back to certain endeavors until there's a vaccine. And I think that that's a that's a possibility here that you're going to have 80 percent of the economy restored. But restaurants aren't going to be booming. Um, entertainment venues aren't going to be booming. Movie theaters aren't going to be booming. Amusement parks. And that's an important part of the economy when you look at the hospitality segment of this economy, as well as uh, some work, some office work isn't going to get fully restored until we get to a better place with the spread of this virus. And we're likely to have persistent spread through the summer, at least enough to keep the marginal consumer more at home than they otherwise would have been. And in looking to the fall, I think we really face the prospect of another cycle with this virus. The good news is we're going to get to the other side of this. There will be a technological solution. We will have a vaccine. We're going to get to herd immunity. We're going to put this behind us. But I think we need to contend with persistent th spread through this summer and in one more cycle with this in the fall. And whether or not that's just large outbreaks and pervasive spread or we experience a true second wave of an epidemic, hard to tell right now. But this is going to be with us for a while. Well, one of the issues, the, the epidemic, as you as you discuss it, it continues to expand as we speak. And you cited today a Morgan Stanley study which said so in terms of the number of new cases we're seeing every day, which are probably, as you suggested last night, still underreported. Right. And if you look state by state, you see states that have expanding uh, epidemics, Arizona, Texas, Arkansas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Um, you're seeing cases, Georgia, you're seeing cases go up, hospitalizations go up. And the most concerning thing is to see that hospitalization data go up. And so at this point in this in this cycle, uh, in this epidemic, we should have been coming down the curve more aggressively. And what Morgan Stanley cited was relative to other nations, we've had sort of persistent spread, this persistent plateau, and we really haven't crushed the virus. And because we haven't crushed the virus, heading into the fall, we're going to have a lot of infection here that's going to be the conduit for outbreaks and spread going into the fall. Um, so we have a much more dangerous platform that we're coming off of. I don't, I don't think we're going to have a major outbreak this summer. I think we're going to get that breather that we talked about because there is a seasonal effect here. But what the seasonal effect is basically going to do is mitigate um, the spread that's already underway. So maybe it's a wash. Maybe we continue with 20,000 infections a day that we're turning over, but we never really get below that. That's a distinct possibility. And if we take 20,000 infections a day into the fall, which, as you said, is really probably 200,000 infections because we're not diagnosing a lot of mild and asymptomatic infections, it's a lot of infection around the country to ignite chains of transmission and, and potentially a new epidemic. I don't know that the, I don't I don't do market commentary and, and, and look at how the markets are discounting future risk. But it doesn't feel like the market's fully discounting that future risk right now, looking out to the fall. I don't know. You may have a career as a, a market analyst as well on the backside of this. You're doing pretty well with that. Let's talk about what the CDC said today, said it's, quote, very concerned that its warnings aren't being heeded about distance and masks. So I'm wondering your feelings about what the CDC had to say today and, frankly, the fact that the CDC had anything to say 
today, Dr. Gottlieb, because the fact of the matter is we haven't heard very much from the CDC of late. Well, the CDC director, Bob Redfield, a friend of mine, testified before Congress today. I think the point about masks is very real. The incremental information that we've gotten in subsequent data shows that universal masking really um, seems to help reduce spread. And so if we can get more people wearing masks, uh, it could reduce the, uh, the epidemic here. One study came out and said that 60 percent of people wear a mask that's 60 percent effective. You could effectively get the R, the reproduction rate, below one, which means instead of an expanding epidemic, you have a contracting epidemic. You've basically started to shrink um, the scope of spread. I think what the problem is with dealing with a population that a lot of people are just exhausted. We've been inside for three months. We've been social distancing and a lot of people are getting exhausted by these measures. And so you're going to see some natural um, relaxation among individuals who just don't do the same things that they've done before. And we need to bake that into our public health assumptions. If we're being rational from a public health standpoint, we need to understand it's hard to keep this going for six or 12 months in a row. Um, and that's why you see sort of a phased reopening and trying to reintroduce things that improve quality of life and give people a sense of normalcy about their lives. But there are certain things that we should just try to continue to do. And I think the masking is one of those things. It's not that hard to remember to wear a mask and try to wear it when you're out in public and in groups. And that's one intervention, a fairly simple intervention, a fairly inexpensive intervention that could probably have a big impact. I'd like to get you on the record tonight, if I could, Dr. Gottlieb, on the, what the Lancet did today, retracting that study on hydroxychloroquine that said it doesn't benefit uh, COVID patients. I'm wondering what you make of, of what happened today. Again, if for, for the reminder, this is that drug the president said he was taking and the one that he touted uh, on numerous occasions. What should we take from what happened at the Lancet today? Well, I think we shouldn't rely on the findings of that study. Um, there's other studies. One that came out yesterday that showed no, um, no benefit from taking it prophylactically, so taking it to try to prevent yourself from getting sick. There's other studies underway looking at whether or not it could be beneficial in the treatment of patients who actively have COVID, some pretty big rigorous studies um, that are placebo-controlled, randomized studies, well-constructed studies. There's been interim looks on those studies, which means that the data safety monitoring boards of those studies took a peek at the interim data, and they allowed those studies to continue. And so what that suggests is that there's not a strong signal that the drug would be hurting anyone, because if there was a strong signal that the drug was hurting more people than it was helping, they would have stopped those studies, and those studies are continuing. I think those are going to provide a more definitive answer on whether or not hydroxychloroquine is providing a benefit that outweighs its risks. My hunch is that if it is beneficial, it's going to be a weak benefit because we've had enough data now and enough experience with it to suggest that it's not wildly beneficial. Um, its benefits, if there are benefits, is probably weak enough that it takes a very big definitive study to tease them out. Does this change a view, though, from a doctor's perspective on whether patients should use it? Well, we've, we've long said, and, CD, and FDA's recommendations now are that people shouldn't be using it outside of a clinical trial. I believe the FDA has said that, but other, other public health groups have clearly stated that, that you shouldn't be using hydroxychloroquine outside a clinical trial. And a lot of doctors have pulled away from using it. It was being widely prescribed initially in New York City, and in fact, some of the some of the observational studies show that 60% of people who were being admitted to the ERs on average were getting hydroxychloroquine. Most doctors have pulled away from widespread use of it. And a lot of doctors I know were taking it themselves prophylactically. That stopped as well because I think, by and large, physicians weren't seeing what they thought was 
a, a really robust treatment effect here to, to merit using it outside of a clinical trial. Let, let's run through a couple of tweets, if we could. And it's the second one on our list for, the, for those playing in the, uh, in the control room for us tonight. So we put up the right one. Because we are thinking about Dr. Gottlieb sports returning. Texas now saying uh, you can have 50 percent capacity at venues. We have a question from Summer in Los Angeles. If sporting events open to fans this fall without a medical advance, how many seats would you want empty around you in each direction? It's an interesting question as we think about whether we'll even be able to be in a venue and then what it's going to look like. Well, look, one would be nice if you can if you can have it. I think the bigger risk inside a sports venue is the coming and going. You need to be mindful of queuing up and getting into crowds. That's probably the bigger risk. And the last one, when uh, when will businesses and schools be able to buy cheap tests for pooling testing so they can test all employees and maybe all customers? Couldn't this stop covid before vaccines or therapies? That's coming online right now, and, and some, um, some venues are using next-generation sequencing. I'm on the board of Illumina, which provides the technology for that because it's a more sensitive tool for looking at, like, let's say, 100 pooled samples at once where you can screen very large populations. Doctor by day, doctor stock analyst by night. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it as always. We'll see you back. Thanks a lot. All right. Be sure to watch the Halftime Report tomorrow at noon Eastern. Speaking of doctors, Dr. Anthony Fauci joining us. We look forward to that interview tomorrow. On a big night for the NBA, we have Atlanta Hawks owner Grant Hill. He's coming up next along with this. Viva Las Vegas. The fountains are on, the alcohol is flowing, and the cards are being dealt. We're talking to one of the first couples to return next. Plus, Knowing what to do requires some conversations to take place first. Wait until you see what happened to this airline CEO when he flew in the back of the plane. Before the break, images from across the country on this Thursday, June 4th. horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager Welcome back. The NBA Board of Directors approving the Board of Governors did today. The league's return to play with a plan of 22 teams set to square off in Orlando, Florida in July, just next month. Grant Hill is a part owner of the Atlanta Hawks. He joins us live tonight. Grant, welcome back to CNBC. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Looks like we're going to do this. So what's your reaction to the NBA coming back and what happened today with the vote? Well, I mean, I, I don't think it, it's too much of a surprise. Uh, certainly the news of the last few weeks, uh, I think we all felt we were moving in that direction. But 
Um, I, I know the league has, has worked tirelessly with the players, with uh, public health officials, and with infectious disease doctors, and uh, have mapped out a strategy to not compromise players and coaches uh, as we sort of resume play uh, you know, in late July. I know you, you have a couple of hats you wear. Co-owners, one, a former player, obviously, from a player's perspective. How do you think the players are feeling tonight, knowing that they're going to be back, but knowing that there are still going to be virus risks around the game? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I do know throughout this whole process, Chris Paul, the president of the Players Association, uh, has been in constant contact with the union, with its members, uh, but also with Adam Silver uh, and, and the NBA. And so it's really been a collaborative process to get to this point. Uh, I'm sure there's been a tremendous amount of reservations, but uh, I think everyone ha- has an understanding that uh, they're going to be as, as careful and as diligent as possible. Uh, everything from, you know, from where they're staying to how they're transported to and from venues uh, to even the proper protocols and measures in the locker room and on the court. Uh, you know, obviously, you're going to do everything you can to, to keep everyone healthy and safe um, and, you know, have have contingency plans uh, in case someone does test positive. But uh, by and large, from from what I'm hearing and all indications, for the most part, players are ready to, to you know, to, to go forward with this and move forward. And uh, uh, I, I've talked to a few players, not just with the Hawks, but players uh, that I've known and played with that are currently still in the league, and, and they're pretty, you know, pretty fired up and excited about getting back out there and playing. Uh, I bet. What do you make of the commissioner's leadership, Adam Silver, through all this? Was the first out, if you will, to, to pull his, his league from play, and now he will be the first in in terms of a major professional sports league to return? Well, you know, I, I, I think right now as there's been a, a, a void uh, of leadership, um, in our country, uh, I'm proud of, of the you know the leadership displayed by uh, by the sports community, and of course, obviously highlighting Adam Silver. And you go back to March 11th, and uh, as we were still sort of uh, processing this COVID-19 and trying to understand uh, its impact, um, you know, he was the first after Rudy Gobert tested positive, and he pulled out, and that was bold at the time. And uh, I think people were still trying to internalize and, and digest everything. And, uh, and so after a lot of deliberation, a lot of consultation, uh, a lot of tough uh, decisions that needed to be uh, discussed and, and, and formulated, uh, you know, we're moving forward right now. So I think that's a credit to that leadership. And uh, I'm proud that it's, you know, the sport that I've uh, been a part of my entire life. I want to ask you about the events of the past couple of weeks, the ones I, I know that, that you're referring to in, in the remarks that you just made. How do you think that the sports world has responded to all of this? And again, as I mentioned, you have the perspective now of an owner. I'm wondering what you think the ownership message should be at a time like this. And if you're a player, what message do you need to hear? Well, first of all, I've been proud as, as players uh, in, in all sports, but particularly in, in basketball and the sport that I you know live in, uh, players have, have used their, their voice and their platforms to address challenges and issues and and particularly what's happened over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, There's been a tremendous amount of access and sharing of information, keeping each other informed and speaking out against these injustices. Uh, So that's something that's fantastic. Uh, I I think in in terms of of organizations and franchises in the NBA, uh, we have that same duty and responsibility. And uh, and so I, I think we all have to acknowledge that 
it's a problem. And the problem, you know, we it's is racism. That's that's the issue, and that's the problem that's at the root of the problem that's been going on. And uh, you know, and so we have to address it, and then we have to do more than just that. We have to figure out how we can be part of the solution. And so I'm proud with the Atlanta Hawks. We're having a town hall meeting tomorrow with all of our employees, a virtual town hall meeting. Uh, all of our employees, our, our part-time employees, uh, people who work in the arena, uh, and we're having an open, candid, uh, non-judgmental conversation. And, uh, you know, people are going to talk from all walks of life, but also it's important that we listen and uh, we take the time to try to understand and try to feel uh, what we're all feeling, but what we all have experienced and the pain that we're going through. And so, uh, but yeah, look, we, we have a duty, we, we have a visibility uh, as a sports league, as a sports franchise, and as athletes. Uh, and I believe with that comes a huge responsibility uh, to address the problems and work, you know, feverishly to try to try to fix them and make a difference. Grant, be well. We'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate your time tonight. All right. Thank you. All right. That's the NBA Hall of Famer and a now co-owner of the Atlanta Hawks, Grant Hill. Las Vegas casinos reopening today for the first time in nearly three months as the Bellagio opened its doors and restarted its famous fountains today. Visitors applauded and poured in. Same thing could be seen at the MGM Grand Caesars win and others, big crowds and long socially distanced lines. But gamblers are finding it's an all new Vegas, half empty casinos, more detailed housekeeping, no shows and gallons of hand sanitizer. One couple wasting no time hitting the strip again. Tanya and Dave Ernelli are travel bloggers who made sure they were in Vegas for its grand reopening, and they are live uh, with us tonight from the Wynn Hotel. It's so good to have you. Uh, Tanya and Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much for uh, having us. I'm dying to know, uh, Tanya, how did it look? What was it like? Merry Christmas. No, it was, <laughs> it was very interesting. Um, you know, we got here the night before uh, the reopening, the third um, very quiet. It's still very quiet here on the Strip compared to what a usual Las Vegas scene would look like. But they started the reopening in the downtown uh, Fremont area first. And it was it was quite exciting. It was definitely uh, a little bit on the, the crowded side as the night went on. They had a opening of 1201 with a few of their choice uh, casino resorts. And um, it was it was quite interesting to see, not only the opening, the energy was kind of high and vibrant. Um, obviously, a city that Similar to New York, a city that never sleeps, which, you know, silent for quite some time. You can obviously understand the eagerness for folks to get back into the swing of things here, yeah. obviously safely, uh, of course. I, I bet. Dave, uh, any trepidation whatsoever on your and, and Tanya's part to be back in Las Vegas right at the beginning and see how this was going to go? Well, there's certainly we're, we are cautious. You know, we wear our masks and. Uh, you know, use a lot of alcohol, sanitation, all that, and make sure we social distance. So we definitely <laughs> take it take it very seriously. Uh, but at the same time, we also believe we need to start somewhere. Right. And, uh, you know, we really believe in what the uh, Las Vegas Strip casinos have been doing. They've spent a lot of time on safety precautions and social distancing. And so we really want to support that as well and get out here, support the employees. And, you know, we love Las Vegas. And so coming out here at the start was something important to us. Well, what do you make, though, Tanya, the fact from what we understand, the video that we've seen today it's not required that you wear a mask inside the casino. That's a bit of an interesting dynamic well, to I deal think, with. Right. No, but I do believe that's anywhere. I think that's something even at the airports. 
Um, it's it's not mandated that you are physically required. They can't force it upon you. So I do believe it's it really comes down to us as individuals to really heed the guidance. You know, they can put the rules in place, but it's up to us to follow those rules and guidance to keep everyone safe. So, you know, I think it's important for, you know, obviously they we do have to start somewhere, but it's kind of one of those times that if we start somewhere, we all have to start somewhere, which definitely requires us all to, to take those guidelines into perspective. I mean, they put them in place, obviously, so that they can start opening the doors. So we have to meet them on that other side of the fence and uh, follow those rules. You guys uh, are about the best experts to talk to in terms of travel, I suppose, in, in this country right now. <laughs> Dave, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on where we are from a travel standpoint, where you're going to go next and how long you think it's going to take before other people are as comfortable as you guys are to get on a plane and go somewhere? Yeah, no, it's interesting because what Tanya said, I think it's very important for folks to wear masks, especially on planes. And we want to see that as well. We encourage that here the best we can. Um, and I know it seems like airlines are pushing more and more to make that, make that mandatory as much as possible. I think that's very important. Right. And uh, we actually feel we're very, very careful. We tried to you know, create that distance. Now, we've had the benefit of not being on really packed flights yet, right? So if things really pick up and, and flights get more packed, you know, obviously that's a little bit of a different situation. Uh, but right now at the start, I mean, we've been able to really maintain that social distance. And yes. so how long does it take? I mean, I do think, you know, we'll have to. Um, time will tell. Time will tell, really. And also what are the results of these early stages? And, you know, because obviously you have that two week period. Right. right. And so and you got to be careful. And I still feel that the, the Vegas capacity is still running at a fraction of what it would do. Oh, yes. run. So there's still a lot of fear in terms of that. So folks are anxious, but they want to see. They want to see what's happening. And. You know, we do feel like we are in a position where we can do that as long as we're following the protocols. Um, and we do feel, you know, especially where we're staying here um, at the Wayne, that they have definitely taken those steps uh, seriously and rigorously. Yeah, we're and very from the impressed. Door. Very impressed yeah. with yeah. that. And so, again, it's, it's up to us as the individuals that travel to meet them, you know, right in the middle and follow those protocols. Even if we don't like them for right now, until yeah. we can actually get a vaccine, let's follow <laughs> those protocols. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, we will all be living vicariously through both of you. Most importantly, have fun, be safe, and we'll check back with you, uh, I hope, and see how this all went and maybe where your next stop takes you. You guys take care. Great. Right. Awesome. Much, Thank Scott. you so much, Scott. Appreciate that. Have right, a wonderful all. week. All right. You as well. Here's Bye. what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. One airline CEO's remarkable story about what happened when he was sitting unrecognized in the back of a plane on a recent flight. And the big change for American universities. This isn't about social distancing. It's about something that's already changing who gets in. That's two minutes away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Getting into college in the USA is about to change. Plus, it's something I've never, ever done before. One business owner's crazy 24 hours. Learn the lessons of his great turnaround tonight. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. American Airlines CEO Doug Parker sharing an emotional discussion he had with an African-American flight attendant on a recent trip. Here's what he told CNBC's Phil LeBeau today. So I bought a ticket on Southwest, flying anonymously with a mask on um, and sitting toward the back. I would brought a book on board to read, uh, particularly given uh, the events of today uh, that, a, that a board member had recommended to me um, called White Fragility. Um, it's, it's, it's a challenging book about how um, race in America and, 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 and white people in particular have trouble talking uh, about race. And even and, and those that those of us that think we're progressive uh, can be a lot of the problem. The flight attendant, I walked in, I guess, saw me carrying it, un, unbeknownst to me. Uh, and with about uh, a little bit of time left in the flight, she came, uh, she was working up toward the front of the aircraft. She came back to the back, sat down uh, in the aisle where I was in the window and asked me about the book and said she saw me bring it on and just wanted to talk to me about it, said she'd been going through, you know, struggling with this as an individual. I started to talk to her about it, uh, said, you know, um, anyway, uh, as best I could, uh, that look, what what the book talks about is that we need to have these conversations. And then she started to cry. Um, And anyway, it it was, look, it was, it was, I I did my best to, to receive what was really a gift to me. Um, she was, she was, she's the one uh, who started the conversation. I have a voice. Um, and those of us that are privileged um, with leadership have, I believe, um, a responsibility uh, to use that privilege, that gift, um, to break down barriers for those that are less privileged. That was American Airlines CEO Doug Parker today right here on CNBC. Moving on, as of 2019, there were more than 369,000 students from China enrolled in U.S. colleges and universities. But because of uncertainties over the virus and other factors, thousands of Chinese students are deferring enrollment for the fall, putting $15 billion in tuition money in question. Let's bring in college admissions consultant Sarah Harbison. She's the owner of Application Nation. Sarah, it's good to have you with us tonight. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. What kind of decline are we truly talking about tonight? It depends on the institution. It could be 5, 10, 15, 20 percent, sometimes higher. So it's a significant portion of the undergraduate population at colleges and universities across the country. What kind of schools are we talking about? Really a a broad mix all across the United States? Public, private, highly selective, all the way down to colleges with very high acceptance rates. This has been going on for 20 plus years. These colleges and universities have relied on Chinese students for so long for application totals, for high test scores, for full pay students so that they don't have to provide financial aid and merit scholarships to American students. So they are really in a bind for the coming year and possibly more years to come. That's an interesting point. Um, you say possibly for years to come. Do, do we think it might be temporary or are we truly concerned this could be a lasting thing? 
Well, you know, we're looking at the fall class, the incoming freshman class, and these um, colleges are wondering if these students are going to come, if they're going to be visa issues. Even if they're able to enroll and take online classes back in China, those colleges are losing all that money for room, board, dining plans, and all the other campus add-on services that bring in a lot of tuition dollars or a lot of revenue to the institution. But looking forward to the fall and following years, you know, those admission staff, they have a responsibility to recruit those students in China. In every college admissions office, there's at least one, maybe multiple people that are targeting all the recruitment efforts and traveling to China. If they're not able to travel this fall, those colleges could see a huge decrease in the number of applications. Sometimes it's a couple of hundred, sometimes it's thousands of applications coming from China. And then ultimately that will impact their enrollment coming from abroad. Because looking at the international student population, the biggest country outside of the United States that provides applications and students to American colleges is China. And what you're saying is those students are, are typically paying full freight, for lack of a better description? That's right, Scott. So, you know, for Chinese students, they are willing to pay sometimes the full amount. And most of the time, if colleges are targeting Chinese students, they're only admitting the students who can pay the full amount. $60,000, a year, depending on the institution, especially a private institution. Those colleges can't rely on those Chinese students. They're going to be looking to American students. But American families, they want need-based financial aid. They want merit scholarships to make that college experience much more affordable for their child. Um, I mean, I'm also thinking about the fact that it does potentially open up a lot of spots for, for U.S. families and, and kids from, from this country to go to schools they otherwise might not have gotten into. That's true. But if we're looking at the incoming freshman class, you know, some of these colleges still have active wait lists. They're going to hold on to those wait lists throughout the summer. But the longer those colleges wait, because they're not sure about those Chinese students coming to campus or being able to enroll, the harder it is going to be to get an admitted student from the wait list to actually come. Those incoming freshman students, they've already committed to another institution. They found a roommate. They've picked their classes. They've done orientation. They may not say yes, but also we've seen a number of colleges, dozens, in fact, over the past month, reopen their admissions process. So even if the deadline passed January 1st, we're seeing some colleges like Furman, Muhlenberg, Dickinson, Franklin and Marshall College open up and start accepting applications at this late date. I was the dean of admissions at Franklin and Marshall for a period of time. I know that they get a lot of applications mm -hmm. and students from China. And so they are probably really scrambling. And that means that they have a gap. Their enrollment target is, yep, is one is at one point and they need to fill in that gap right. of students if those Chinese students don't make it. Interesting story. One will continue to follow. Sarah, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Sarah Harbison joining us tonight. A lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Think of something. Let me think outside the box. Next tonight, turning lemons into a business saving idea. This guy now has more employees than he did when the crisis began. His story next. Before the break, our world on day 158 of the pandemic.
Under the crushing pressure of a global pandemic, entrepreneurs have had to think fast to keep their businesses alive. Tonight, the owner of a produce business shares his struggle to adapt, shift, and succeed. Here's CNBC's Andrea Day. It was the emptiest I have ever felt in my life. It was devastating. Just hours into the pandemic, and Michael Longo's wholesale produce business was crashing hard. Within the first hour, I had let go 70 employees. The restaurants he serviced were shut down, and he was left with about $800,000 in produce he had to sell fast. I said, I got to think of something. Let me think outside the box. Less than 24 hours later, he had a plan, something he had never even considered before. I said, we have to do this. We have to do home business. And everybody looked at me like I was insane. With sales flatlining, he invested in delivery boxes and magnets for the trucks to promote the new business and created a website. And I hear this like ching noise. And I was like, what is that? And I take out my phone and that was the first order. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Within the first week, I was able to bring 10 more people back. Four weeks, it was, it was 70, and we've since hired eight more people. I don't know when it was the exact moment when I said, this is another business. We can communicate back and forth with them with things on sale, new items, and it's something I've never, ever done before. I never needed to do. And now every day, whatever sales you have, it goes right into your account. I believe it's an eight to $10 million business that happened on accident. It happened being scared. It happened crying. It was sad, but it turned into something that is the best decision that I made in business ever. Number one thing that I did, I went with my gut and I believe in myself more important than anything in the world. For CNBC, I'm Andrea Day. Appreciate that report. Mr. Longo, by the way, tells us he believes when restaurants reopen, his wholesale business will come back, allowing for more hiring. Tonight's headlines and, of course, our nightly shout out of America's restaurants. That's coming up next. It is time for our nightly shout out to those restaurants operating in the face of crisis. We do have Five more for you tonight. We salute Porky's Taquitos in Salino, Kansas, Churrasco Grill, Lake Hiawatha, New Jersey, the Silver Street Tavern in Waterville, Maine, Fahrenheit, Cleveland, Ohio, and the Local Pie in Bluffton, South Carolina. Tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name, the town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture and you might just see it on TV as well. On day 158 of the coronavirus crisis, the headlines for you tonight. The head of the CDC says recent protests could spur more outbreaks of the virus. Nearly two million more people filed for unemployment last week. Do not miss Dr. Anthony Fauci at noon tomorrow on the Halftime Report. Have a great evening for all of us here at CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner. And of course, Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.